Hello, and welcome to episode seven of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies, clearly live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Blaise Joseph, Education Research Fellow at the Center for Independent Studies. Blaise will be talking to us today about the current status of school closures in Australia and what that means for students. Blaise Joseph, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Salvatore. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being on the show. Look, last week in Spectator, you wrote, (laughs) I don't know if you made up this headline, but someone wrote that you saw the light at the end of the tunnel, except in Dan Andrews stand. Now, Victoria says it'll be opening its state schools in four weeks. Is that the right timing? How are we doing? Yeah, I think it's a good sign. Uh, They're finally going back to -to face-to-face classes and they're back down. Um, Dan Andrews stand is in my line, actually. That was the spectator. (laughs) It sounds very Rowan Dean, I have to say. It's not me, I'm afraid. Um, But no, I think Victoria and Tasmania have been outliers on this because the other states and territories started moving back to -to face-to-face classes as soon as possible. Um, I guess it's an inevitable consequence of living in a federalist system, right? That states and territories are going to close schools and open schools at different times. But I think it is a good sign now that all the states and territories at least have mapped out a plan to move back to -to face-to-face classes. Because what we know is that when students are learning from home, there's a huge amount of inequity there. Lots of students learn less than they otherwise would, um, and educational results would suffer. So it is good that we're moving back to all schools being open now. Now, we talk a lot at CIS about competitive federalism, the idea that you know, different states by having different policies actually contribute to having overall, we, we find the best policy mix. Has Victoria been doing a service by keeping its schools closed? After all, competitive federalism seems to imply Northern Territory is open, Victoria is closed, and we see how things develop. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. Like, it, there's nothing wrong necessarily with states and territories doing different things. But I think what we can say is that the expert advice provided to the National Cabinet was completely ignored by Victoria for quite a long time. Because the expert advice has been very clear from the start. It's safe for schools to remain open. The educational advice was that students, especially students from disadvantaged backgrounds, would suffer as a result of schools being closed. And also it was going to hurt the economy because many parents can't work from home and also supervise their child's education. So I think what we have seen here is a policy which just isn't evidence-based. And I think that is concerning that when when we have governments not following what the evidence clearly is clearly telling them to do. Right. Now, is this about parents or is this about students? Is it about parents needing to work or is it about students needing to learn? I think it's both, actually. I, I really think it's both. Um, I mean, because on the one hand, most students, you would think, aren't going to be too disadvantaged from a few weeks away right. from school, right? But there's still a substantial portion, especially students from disadvantaged backgrounds, students in year 12 who have upcoming high-stakes exams, students in, for example, year one who might not have reading ability yet and students with disadvantaged parents might not have access to good parental support at home. And their learning will absolutely be hurt as a result of a few weeks away from, away from school. And on, on the other hand, in regards to parents, it is true that for a lot of parents, they can work from home and, um, and sort of have a go at trying to simultaneously supervise their child's education. Not easy, and I think... As we've seen, that just doesn't work. I mean, it's not a practical, reasonable expectation of parents. But there's a lot of other parents who just can't work from home without jeopardizing their income, whether they're tradies or bus drivers or whatever. I think for that reason, I think the public support for school closures has really tanked. I think we've seen sort of parents really rising up and saying we want schools to be open again. And we're finally seeing governments responding as a result. Right. I mean, could I take this out of the social level and put it to the individual level? Because you have mentioned that many individual parents simply are 
unable to work and watch their kids, and especially the, the very people who we need most to be responding to a crisis, or we need most to, to be doing essential work. I mean, if someone picking up the trash has to stay home and watch their parents, no one picks up my, watch your children, no one picks up my trash. So what are the, you know, the socioeconomic dimensions of this? Well, I think that's a good point. And I think just to clarify, schools in Australia have been open in the sense that They've told parents to, to keep their children at home if possible, but they have told parents that if it's not possible to keep your child at home, then you can send them to school anyway. So children of emergency workers and so on. So there has been some exceptions. So attendance has been around you know, 5 and 10% in some states and territories. Now okay. it's back up towards 90% again. But we should just make that that smaller caveat that there, there have been some exceptions. But I think nevertheless, I think it does show, in my opinion, a bit of a cosmopolitan bias, to be honest, because... For a lot of journalists or researchers or academics or politicians, you can work from home um, and, and it's not a huge deal. But for a lot of workers, you can't do that. And, and expecting them to, to, to work from home or to completely re, uh, redesign their lives so that they can supervise their child's education is just completely unreasonable. Now, what does this mean for education, though? I mean, if, if you're sending your child to school and the you know attendance is 5 or 10%, Clearly, they're not running ordinary classes. So what are they doing? Yeah, well, I think essentially uh, students have been given a whole lot of work to do either at home or or, uh, or in school, and they're doing that same work. And, and specifically what's been happening is students have been going into computer labs and have been supervised by a teacher there, but they're not doing anything different which they would do to what they would just be doing at home. So in that right. sense, yeah, schools, to the extent that they have been open, have not been open at all as normal uh, at all. Um, and I think as a result of that, you see a lot of students just don't get that one-on-one support. They don't get the, um, right. the direct instruction from teachers to the extent that they otherwise would. And that absolutely does hurt their educational outcome. Right, right. And what about homeschooling? I mean, is that hurting at students' education? Or is that is that only exacerbating the gap? I mean, we, we've heard a lot about parents who have books in the home tend to have kids who obviously start reading faster and such. And, you know, I think that would probably just carry over to homeschooling, right? I mean, aren't there massive advantages for some people homeschooling versus others? I mean, I'm a university professor. If I had kids, they'd probably, they'd probably learn nothing. But, but some people are really well-equipped and some are poorly equipped. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Salvatore. That's absolutely right. Um, the truth is, if you're learning from home, the, the amount you're going to learn is going to depend to a large extent on your parents' educational background, the extent to which your parents can help you with that learning and the extent also to which they have time to, to help you at home and aren't busy doing doing work. So in that sense, yeah, this does exacerbate existing inequities. So I think no doubt about that. Um, there's been some estimates done to the National Cabinet which said that if you kept this up for two terms, uh, students from disadvantaged backgrounds could fall behind by up to four weeks in reading and around four six weeks. weeks in numeracy across two terms. So it's good okay. we haven't got to that stage. It's good that sort of most of them have been capped in you know, a maximum, say, the equivalent of one term or a bit less. So that's good. Right. So, the results won't be as bad. But nevertheless, I think there are a large portion of students out there who has who have been disadvantaged as a result of this. Right. Now, you did mention earlier on that, uh, that, that states weren't necessarily following the expert advice that had been given to National Cabinet. Now, uh, you probably know I myself have been very critical of expert advice over the years. I mean, what expert advice are we talking about and, and how much do you trust it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, mean, I guess in Australia, given what seem to have done pretty well. I think it's reasonable to trust the expert advice here. Um, but I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but the medical advice has just been that students aren't, aren't a major spreader of, 
of coronavirus and right. they, they get it, they tend to be asymptomatic. So it's just, it's not particularly, I mean, it, it is actually quite safe for students to go to school. And so there has been a, a reasonable concern around the health of teachers and ensuring that teachers can socially distance from other teachers. Um, so I think that's a, that's a reasonable, uh, a reasonable concern raised by the teaching units here. But I think, nevertheless, the advice from the start has been that it's safe for schools to remain open. Um, and we've heard, for example, from the Queensland, one of the Queensland Chief Medical Officers, that in Queensland, when they decided to close the schools or at least ask parents to keep their children at home if possible, it wasn't because they thought schools were unsafe. It was actually to send a message. They basically wanted to send a message telling parents, oh, this is actually really serious. They thought that if we don't close schools, people won't take it seriously. Now, I think that is a bit concerning. I think so when you when you sort of move away from medical advice towards sort of trying to create mm-hmm. public panic, basically, um, I think that is a bit concerning. And I think children, a lot of children anyway, um, have had their educational outcomes hurt as a result. Okay. Now, forgive me, I'm going to push you a little bit here. The expert advice, the expert consensus may be that it's safe for children to be in school. But what's the level of confidence in that advice? Uh, I mean, believing it's safe and knowing it's safe are two very different things. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. And, and it's, it's different to having other sicknesses, for example, with the flu, where we know kids are the main spreaders. And if you work in a school, you're guaranteed to get flu. And kids always give it to each other and so on. So that's right. when coronaviruses kind of a bit counterintuitive. I think, nevertheless, you do need to go off the best available evidence. If you're going to have a, a government policy, you're going to go to the, the huge um, the huge measure of closing schools and denying children a proper education for a period of weeks or indefinitely or, or months or whatever, um, you, you'd want that to be based in evidence. So I think the, the burden of proof is on the people wanting to close schools, not the other way around. Okay. Now, look, homeschooling, some people say it has real benefits. And I know there was an op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, earlier this week saying, you know, it's great that kids had a little break from school because now when they go back, it's going to be exciting and they're going to love school. Uh, is a little, is an extra summer vacation. Do you guys have summer vacation in Australia? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Is an extra, is an extra summer vacation necessarily a bad thing? Well, it's not necessarily a bad thing for most students, but I think for some students, particularly as we were talking about those from disadvantaged backgrounds, I think it is actually a big thing. I mean, the research on homeschooling is very interesting. So on average, students who homeschool actually perform better than students who don't homeschool. Um, But I think that what has been raised in this debate is that what we're talking about here isn't actually homeschooling. Because homeschooling, the research which has been done to date on it, is basically where the parents control the curriculum. They decide what their child gets taught. They... Uh, provide individualised learning, they adjust the teaching to suit the individual child and so on. Now, none of that's been happening, right? There's basically, parents have just been supervising a child at home, still yeah. using the school curriculum resources. So in that sense, you don't get all the, any of the benefits of homeschooling, but you do get a lot of the downsides uh, in what's currently happening. So this current learning from home, um, it's, I don't think we'd expect to see any of the major benefits that you'd normally get with homeschooling. Right. Also, there are, uh, speaking as a, as a social statistician, there are probably massive uh, endogeneity in that homeschooling results, meaning that uh, people who are likely to homeschool well are those who are most likely to choose to homeschool their students. Uh, look, I, I'd like to take a minute just to remind everyone, we do take questions. Now, ordinarily, we do that through the YouTube chat window. We know there's been a huge technological mess today. Those of you who've come through with us to Zoom, we really appreciate it. Of course, we make the whole video available on YouTube. But we have set up the chat window in Zoom as a place people can ask questions. I am assured by our producers that you can just 
click chat and type into that window and I'll see it. Now, no one has chatted yet. So I'd love to see someone enter a question. We can go to questions as soon as I get start getting any questions. So please, okay, I have, you know, I have the producer saying, hey, Salvatore in the chat window, but do we have anyone who's actually listening saying, hey, Salvatore in the chat window? I'd love to see your knock knock jokes, but more importantly, I'd love to see your questions for Blaze. So if you can get that, into the chat window, we can get started with viewer questions. Uh, you know, Blaze, you're doing a lot of research for the CIS on education. And uh, you know, I know you're not just a one-trick coronavirus pony like a lot of us who've been commenting on the coronavirus crisis. What are the larger issues in education that you've been studying for CIS? Well, I think one of the key, I think the, you know, the, the policy question uh, education researchers have been trying to, to answer for a long time is how do we help students from disadvantaged backgrounds? Okay. Because we know, you know some schools do very well in Australia and other schools do not so well. Um, and I guess the question is, well, how do we raise, how do we sort of um, you know, copy that best practice and, and make it common practice, if I could put it that way? So that, that's been one of the key questions. Um, and so in the past, one of the, the focus has been on increasing school funding. So that the, the consensus has been that if you increase first-year funding, especially for disadvantaged students, outcomes will improve. And we've right. seen over the past 10 or, 15, 10 or 15 years that just hasn't worked, right? So extra school funding hasn't led to better outcomes. And so as a result, I think we have to look at, well, what are the best schools doing? So some of our recent research has been looking at high-achieving disadvantaged schools. So schools in disadvantaged areas, which don't receive more funding than other disadvantaged schools, but still do really well, it's still, still high-achieving. So we've been looking at some of the common practices and policies of those schools. And I think, you know, there's a couple of key things there. I mean, one is certainly high expectations. We see that as a common thing. School discipline and showing that students uh, have, a, have a culture of respect and paying attention in the classroom, and, it's, and there's a school-wide policy; it's not dependent on individual teachers. And also, uh, just ensuring that early reading instruction is done really well and comprehensively, um, because if right. students fall behind in reading in, the, in those early years, it takes a long time for them to catch up. So, evidence-based early reading instruction, such as phonics, which makes a huge difference as well. All right. Now, everyone, I'd like to both apologize and brag a little bit. The Center for Independent Studies has had its first case of Zoom spam <laughs> because we did post that public link to let people get in and we have had a uh, spammer come and hit us with the comments. That's been locked down now, but uh, we're famous. Uh, we're on the internet. That's great. We have a question from Monica. Uh, Monica wants to ask, do you think an unintended positive of homeschooling is that parents will now be more engaged in one good side effect, which is that parents are more aware of what their children are learning and might be more engaged with them and can see what level their students are at, especially in the essential skills of literacy and numeracy. I think another benefit as well is they can probably see some of the flaws in the current curriculum. They can see, oh, okay, well, the curriculum isn't actually as good as you would hope it to be. You would hope it to be. It's not sufficiently focused on content that's too much extraneous topics covered and so on. But yeah, I think there are actually some benefits of students learning from home because then parents can see, A, how they're going and B, how the school system is going and what is the school actually teaching. You know, that's a really good point for Monica. I hadn't thought about this. Should we try this like one day a term for, you know, going forward that one day a term everyone arranges that kids will learn at home? Because I think it's fantastic to get parents engaged in this, what's going on in the school. And many parents have no idea what's happening in school. I mean, I'm serious. Would this be a good idea for a future policy intervention? 
I think it's great to have parents involved in school. I mean, I, I think whether that's sort of a, you need to have a compulsory formal policy to do that, I don't, I'm not sure if that's necessary. I think when you look at a lot of the high-achieving schools, they've got very good parent bodies and they've spent a long time sort of building up that culture where parents feel that they can participate in the school, that they can provide feedback to the school and that they're aware of how their child is going in, in specific subjects in a detailed way. So I, th- I think it can be done at the school level. I don't think it necessarily needs to be done at the system level. But that being said, I think, and as you know, the research is very clear on this, you know, the more parents are involved in their child's education, um, they do tend to do better over time. And that's true regardless of income level or... It's controlling for income level. It's controlling for socioeconomic backgrounds. controlling for right. uh, educational level as well. Right, right. Now, look, if anyone listening is still bearing with us and is not, hasn't got their frustration levels over their head, we'd love to have you as a member at Center for Independent Studies. Forgive me for making this pitch, even when we've had so many problems. But if you are watching uh, and you're not a member, you know, please do go to cis.org.au, consider becoming a member. It's only $40 a year. And for that $40 a year, you'll get links to our fee- our future uh, staffus with our online shows. And, you know, we look, we'd love to have you be part of the family. And so please uh, consider joining. If you're already a member, you know, consider an extra contribution. The Center for Independent Studies uh, really does need your help. It takes no government funding whatsoever. And that includes the job keeper benefit. So the Center for Independent Studies has been pushing its way through this without job keeper support, without any government support, any contribution helps. Also, I'll point out, those contributions help keep help justify the Center for Independent Studies keeping us on the air here with On Liberty. So it's a it's a KPI for this show, uh, and we hope you will support us. We have another question from Alicia. Alicia says, "Year twelve students in New South Wales are back, either full time or part time. How is this going to play out in the HSC? And do you really think there's going to be a level playing field?" I think it's a really good question, Alicia. Actually. Um, so I think school closures have, I think, definitely had a disproportionate impact on different schools, okay? There's no doubt about that. So some schools have more or less remained open in some way or another for year 12 for the whole period. Others have been closed entirely. Some year 12 students aren't even back at their school yet. It's just there's a, a lot of variation across uh, across the states and territories and even in states and territories. So for year, for year 12 students, um, yeah, absolutely, there is a, there's an issue here and that well, some students will have been more effective than others. That being said, I think the fact that we've managed to keep school closures to not being too long, so a bit over a month, a month and two months, I think has managed to limit that impact. I um, would also hope that Year 12 students by that stage have at least some self-study habits. Right. So I think this isn't ideal, definitely isn't ideal at all, but I think it's, it's important that you know, we still try to push ahead as, as, as well as possible. Um, because the alternative really at this stage, we don't actually have an alternative. Um, we don't have an alternative to the ATAR, which is viable and fair but, but Alicia points out, you know, her one of her children is only back at school two days a week. A lot of her, the, her peers are back five days a week. Is that creating equity problems for the HSC? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it would have made far more sense for the New South Wales government to have year 12 students come back full time first and then gradually bring back the other year groups rather than having every year group coming back for one or two days a week. And I think that's a very fair criticism of the New South Wales government policy. Right. Now, William uh, pointed out he is already a member. Thank you, William. Thank you for all the members who are listening. I'm pretty sure uh, Chris is a member, too. And Chris wants to ask us, could Blaze comment on the starting New South Wales policy? Now, I I don't know about this, so forgive me if I get it wrong. I'm just reading Chris's question. One day on, four days off. 
he says a primary teacher I know says either no school or 100% school is the way to go. What, what do you think? No, I think that's a very fair, that's a very fair point as well. So it's, it's basically what we were saying before, how in New South Wales have been having various different year groups come back for one day a week rather than bringing back, say, year one and year 12 and then gradually bring back the other year groups. Um, so, yeah, I think that does make a lot more sense than sort of trying to sort of go in that way. I think it was a, it was a criticism from the teaching unions, and, you know, I, I'm not normally on the same page as the teaching unions, but I think it was a very fair criticism from the teaching unions saying that the government should have brought back year groups as a whole on a full-time basis rather than staggering everyone back one or two days a week. Now, Chris points out that this is creating a lot of extra work because of the rostering system, the need to do tons of paperwork to make this happen. Are you familiar with that at all? Well, yeah, as well. I mean, it's, it also, it's just common sense, right? That, I mean, if, if, you've got, if you've got different year groups coming back on different days, who's teaching what year group? Um, whereas if you just have one year group back, then you know which teacher is responsible for that and you can work around that, and which teachers are responsible for still teaching right. the students who are at home. So, yeah, it's, it's a massive practical problem, and it's amazing this wasn't obvious beforehand. Right, right. Uh, we have another question from Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin is saying that the we're all in this together rhetoric is uh, a load of rubbish. He stresses that inner suburban and outer suburban families have very different experiences when it comes to home education and uh, returning to school. What, what do you see as that geographic split, the inner-outer suburban split? Well, I think, I think what you do see is that it, it's probably in the, in, the inner, in the inner suburban split, if I can put it that way, on average, you tend to have better internet speeds. Parents tend to be more able to work from home, tend to be more likely to have a university degree and so on. So in that sense, working from home and supervising your child's education, while difficult, is nowhere near as hard as for students, as for parents from other suburbs. So I think that that's definitely true. There's a geographic divide here. And I think that hasn't been sufficiently acknowledged by a lot of the media and especially the government. Well, of course, the ultimate geographic divide is apparently Macquarie Street is the worst place to be for internet access in Australia, as we found out today. Uh, Peter Curdy wants to ask, what are the technical obstacles to homeschooling? So, and, and how significant are these? Has the NBN saved Australia? Or uh, will you tell me, what are the technical problems people are encountering? Well, so here's the thing. So some schools have sort of been doing basically Zoom classes, so almost like okay. a university class, um, where the students have to dress up in their uniform and they basically do a normal school day. Right. In other schools, you basically just give a massive dump of paperwork, which is sent home with the kid and the parents need to go through it with them. So some are, some aren't even using an online system. Um, some are using sophisticated online learning platform forms, others aren't. So to that extent, yes, there is a, there's a difference depending on how how good your internet connection is. But there's also a difference in school because some schools are doing right. sophisticated online learning and other schools are just basically giving, handing over the work to the parents and expecting them to do it. So there's a big variation there as well. We have another viewer question. What role has the teachers union had in the decision to encourage students to stay at home? Well, I think the teacher union has been very concerned about teacher health in particular. Um, I think they've been very much pushing state governments early on to close schools and ensure that people could learn from home. Um, I, I think the concern is that that was against what, as I said before, it was against what the actual medical advice was. Certainly that decision, uh, I think, didn't, didn't take into account the fact that this was especially for students from disadvantaged social backgrounds. And, mm -hmm. they, just, and they didn't take into account the economic impact of, of school closures as well. 
So I think in that sense, I think the Trade unions have been pushing a, what is fundamentally not an evidence-based policy, fundamentally a bad public policy, uh, albeit you know, based on those very reasonable concerns about people's safety, which I think could have been handled um, while also keeping schools open. Right. We have another viewer question about the ATAR. So what, did, what will universities do as far as admissions policies go in, in response to the school problems? I, I, you know, we are so bureaucratized. I don't see admissions. I see students after arrive, but I don't even know how they get to me. Uh, but do you have any thoughts about the ATAR? I don't, I don't even know what ATAR stands for, so <laughs> you'll have to forgive me, but you tell us. So don't forget the ATAR. The ATAR is a rank, right? It's not a, it's not okay. a world score. So you're being ranked compared to other students. So to the extent that everyone is in some way impacted by school closures, then um, at least everyone's equally affected and you can at least have some sort of ranking. Um, I think that's been complicated, as I've said, by the school closures. So it does mean that some students are disadvantaged, hopefully because the school closures didn't go on too long. Um, we'll still be able to push ahead with the reasonably fair ATAR anyway. Of course, the ATAR is calculated on a state and territory basis. So it's... Um, as in students are uh, competing against students in their own state or their own territory. So in that sense, um, the different policies between states and territories don't undermine the, um, the integrity of the ATAR too much. So I think, you know, the ATAR is going to be not as good as it normally is this year. It's concerning. Some students are going to be disadvantaged, but it's nevertheless the best option we have at this time. Right. Now we have perhaps the most important question of all from Liz. And Liz wants to know, what can we learn? from the learning at home experience to further innovate the delivery of education. What are we gonna learn from the whole crisis experience? Yeah, well, there's gonna be a lot of data which we can, which us education researchers are gonna be able to look into for the next few years. It's gonna keep us busy sort of looking at how coronavirus school closures affected student outcomes. Um, so yeah, there's gonna be a lot of research going into that. I think the key research questions for me are, is there a disproportionate effect on disadvantaged students? I think it'll be quite clear, but quantifying that's going to be very important going forward. Um, I think also, are parents able to actually work from home and supervise their child's education at the same time? Um, I think that was the expectation from the government, but I think it's quite an unreasonable expectation. I, mean, I don't have kids, but I think it's, it's pretty obvious that that's not a practical thing to expect all parents to be able to do. Um, and so I think that's another question which needs to be looked at going forward. And also, what, what's the potential economic impact of school closures if that means that more parents aren't able to work full-time? Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions we need, need to be raised there. As I mentioned before, I think it does have the potential to increase parental participation in a child's education. And in that sense, there are, there are some possible upsides to it as well. And I think all that needs to be researched over the next few years. Will, will you be doing any of this kind of research? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we're actually at the moment at CIS, we're doing a paper on, on the, the impact of school closures, especially on disadvantaged students, but also just more broadly, um, and how that's going to play out by state and territory based on how long their schools have been closed for. Right. Now we have a, <laughs> I can only describe it as a bit of a leading question from David. David wants to know if there is a positive aspect of homeschooling is it a reduction in the ability of teachers to indoctrinate kids with leftist dogma? <laughs> and what do you think about that? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a fair question. I'll leave it to you. <laughs> no, it's a fair question. Um, and I think, you know, that is one of the reasons why a lot of parents find school. Um, I, I think I do, you have a fair, do you have a fair answer for us? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that is one of the reasons why a lot of parents find school. And that, from my perspective, it does depend a lot on the individual school. So if you look at the curriculum, 
broadly speaking, there's a lot of sort of dot points in the curriculum which could be well taught or they could be badly taught in an ideological way. So it does depend on the school and teachers. So, you know, a good school with good teachers don't have a problem. But absolutely, it is true that in certain schools, with certain teachers, you do get that activism. And in a, to that extent, it's, it's very reasonable for parents to consider homeschooling, especially if they can't afford a private school. Right. And Liz is also, by the way, a CIS member. She points out, thank you for your support. And any of you who are not CIS members, please, cis.org.au, just click on the member button. You may be on the email list, not be a member. And so if, you, if you're in that category, if you're getting these emails, but you haven't ponied up $40 a year to become a member, uh, please do consider going to CIS being upgrade to a full membership. We really appreciate it. Uh, William wants to ask, or at least point out, that kind of going back to something you said earlier, parents are now finding out what their children are learning. Now, on the one hand, that's good. Parents are getting more engaged in schooling, perhaps. But he also wonders if parents may not be happy, if they may feel that they disagree with the curriculum. And he cites, in particular, uh, climate brainwashing that uh, as a potential, as something that parents may be discovering about what's going on at school. Climate brainwashing, his word, not mine. Uh, what do you think? Are parents going to be upset now that they're finding out what their children are learning? Yeah, well, I think I think it, some parents will be. And I think that it could, to that extent, it is a good thing if they realize that their children were learning something which they didn't realize they were, they were learning before. And I think, again, as I mentioned before, I think it does depend a lot on the individual school. So, for example, the curriculum on climate change, it's, it's very broad. So it can be taught in many different ways. And it can be taught well and it can be taught badly in an ideological way. So in that sense, I think I think it can perhaps cause some parents to reconsider their school choice and to consider if perhaps there's an, another school nearby which might teach these things in a better way. Um, so I think right. that's definitely a, a good possibility as well. Okay. Now, we're going to be wrapping up soon. So I just want everyone, if you have final questions, get them in. That's in the chat box on Zoom. If you send us questions to the chat box, we'll try to get them out in a kind of rapid-fire way before we close on uh, Blaze's session here. But uh, we do have a great question from Kim. And Kim says, earlier you pointed out the evidence says more money doesn't necessarily equal better outcomes for disadvantaged kids. Well, if not more money, then what are you suggesting would help disadvantaged kids? Oh, very good question. Um, so we've done a we've done an interesting report on this recently, which I'll I'll just through quickly. It's called Overcoming the Odds, a study of Australia's top performing disadvantaged schools. So we looked at nine top achieving disadvantaged schools, which don't have more money than other schools and still did really well. Um, so I think a few really key things, school discipline. Um, again, that's almost a dirty word these days, like because sort of some people consider it's kind of stifling children's creative potential or whatever. Um, but as we know, you know, high expectations of student behaviour in school and high expectations of their behaviour in, in class is, a, is an essential starting point for a good education. Right. Um, in particular as well, uh, a focus on direct instruction, so teachers clearly explicitly teaching new content in a systematic way. Um, that's especially important for disadvantaged students who may have less okay. background knowledge than their parents and more advantaged students would. Um, okay. And also, I think, data-informed practice, so ensuring that Students are tracked all the way through school, um, and if they're falling behind, there's an effective intervention to help them to help them improve. So those are some of the things. So I think we do know what needs to be done. It doesn't require more taxpayer funding, and I think that's that's something which we're going to keep pushing at CIS for uh, for a long time to come. Right now, any final questions? Please get them in the chat window. We are about to wrap up, Liz. I'm going to follow up on something you just said to ask about. Uh, that structured learning environment. I, I mean, I'm speaking as a sociologist, not as an education professional. I, I do educate, but 
you know, in a university setting, which is very different. Speaking as a sociologist, it strikes me that a structured learning environment would be good for everybody, but an unstructured one would simply allow those who are excelling anyway to continue to excel while everyone else falls behind. Is that, is my sociological instinct backed up by the education research? Oh yeah, absolutely it is, yeah. So there's been a lot of research done on what's something known as inquiry-based learning. So basically where we okay. give students um, a task, you tell them to go off and learn about it. And what you find is that students who are already well-motivated, already know a lot, already doing well, they'll go off and they'll do that very well. But for most students, and especially for students from disadvantaged backgrounds who might not have as much background knowledge or might not be well-motivated, they just fall behind further. They really need that structure so that they can get the background knowledge and then build on that knowledge going forward. Um, so I think, yeah, that's absolutely true. That structured learning is, is, a, is, a, um, is, is the best way to go. That's what, what the educational evidence overwhelmingly shows. So I think your sociological instincts are very sound. All right, now uh, we have one final question and then we're going to wrap up. So let our producers know we're going to be wrapping up soon. Uh, Blaze, if one final question, oh, this actually comes in from Max. And William, by the way, thank you for your thank you. Thanks for listening. Max asks us, has Blaze looked at the work of Catherine? Oh, I need my, I need my reading glasses for this one. Catherine Burblesing, you got it, at the Michaela School. Do you know about Catherine Burbersing and what can you tell us about her work? Yeah, well, she's the principal of the Michaela Charter School in, in the UK. And that's mm -hmm. a very high achieving school in a disadvantaged area. And she managed okay. to achieve that through a combination of school discipline, direct instruction and evidence-informed practice. And I think, you know, that, that's a really great success story. Um, so we know it's possible, right? We know it's possible for a disadvantaged school right. to do really well, have a high, you know, have very high results. Obviously, there's still going to be a, a divide between the best schools and the worst schools. Schools in rich areas will still have better average results than schools in poorer areas. That's the same all around the world. But we should be able to have a good min national minimum standard. So it is doable. I think when we look at the, the best practices in some of these high-paid disadvantaged schools, we see that is possible. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for that positive message of things we can do to make things better in education. Thank you, Blaise Joseph, for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thanks, Salvatore. I do want to thank our producer, Emily Holmes, executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver, and of course, the director of Center for Independent Studies, Tom Switzer. We will hopefully see you next week, or at least you will see us on On Liberty from the Center for Independent Studies. Thanks, everyone.